All right, church fam, go ahead and find your seats. Make your way to your seats. We are going to dig in and get things rolling this morning. Everybody having a good morning so far? Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Um, hey, before we dive in, I've got a couple of things, uh, just some quick housekeeping things, but also some, some really cool uh, things to celebrate. Uh, last week, if you were here last week, right after service, uh, as a church, we walked about a block down the road, or went about a block down the road, and served uh, with one of our friends and partners, Lifeline Christian Mission. They, they do uh, meal packing uh, for food insecure countries, food insecure uh, places, uh, food insecure uh, people groups, things like that. Um, so we've got some pictures of that, we'll just kind of scroll through those. It was amazing. Again, kids, parents, young, old, all serving together. Uh, all in, we packed close to 4,000 meals uh, in about an hour, which is great. You guys can, can definitely celebrate that. Um, and those meals are going to uh, one of Crossroads, another one of our uh, mission partners, going to Crossroads Mission Field uh, that is in Piedras Negras, Mexico, which is right on the border of Mexico and Texas, uh, to support families there. Um, so that's really awesome. Thank you all for showing up last week, staying a little extra, uh, going to serve, having some fun, dancing. They play great music. They have a great soundtrack at Lifeline. Um, so it was a lot of fun. The other thing that I want to plug and, and promo real quick is, is coming up in a couple of weeks, it's called Say Yes Sunday. Um, and so this, I'm telling you, is going to be, I think, uh, as we've been kind of planning for this and praying about this, this is going to be one of, these, one, of, one of those defining moments in our church that years from now we look back and go, that was part of something, right? Like this will be one of those kind of flag in the whatever um, moments. Um, so I want to invite you to come be a part of this Say Yes Sunday. It's an opportunity for us to, uh, to say yes to some things that Jesus maybe has been calling us to, uh, things that, that maybe we never thought were possible, um, volunteer hearing th things like that, serving in ministries, uh, and then stepping out, mostly stepping out in faith in ways that we've never uh, done before. So you Say Yes Sunday is coming up uh, in, in just a few weeks, and then we're going to celebrate summer together. There's going to meal. There's going to be a meal, and kids are going to play. We're going to have water games. It's going to be a blast. So make sure you're here on August 13th. Uh, invite friends, invite family, bring people with you, bring neighbors and coworkers, because it's going to be an, an awesome Sunday. So uh, let's do this. Let me pray for us. And then we're going to dive in. Uh, Jesus, we love you. And this morning, uh, Jesus, we pray that your spirit, we know that the Holy Spirit is in the room. And the Holy Spirit is not like the bronze medal winner when it comes to power, authority, and presence. Uh, it is 100% God present in this room, present in our lives. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask you this morning just to move. Uh, just like, like Grace prayed just a second ago, the, the Spirit, today you would do a new work in us. You would show us these parts of our lives that need to change. And, and Jesus, we give you praise, the fact that, that it's because of you that we can. That it's because of your cross, it's because of your life, your death, and your resurrection, that, that change is possible. Without you, we would be lost. Without you, we would be sunk. Without you, whatever we're dealing with, whatever we're going through, whatever our plot is in life, it would just be what it is. But because of you, that, that phrase, it is what it is, doesn't really exist. Things can change. We can change. Life can change. And so, Jesus, today we just give you praise, all the glory and honor for that. Uh, open our ears, soften our hearts, open our eyes to the truth that you want to teach us today. And we just, we love you. We love you desperately, and we desperately need you. Um, so, Jesus, we pray all this in your name. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. All right. So, from the beginning of this series, we, we've pointed out a pretty simple and obvious fact, right? And that's this, that, that Jesus' kingdom culture and our modern-day cancel culture are at odds with one another, right? They're, they're not compatible. 
You can't take kind of modern-day cancel culture and everything that it stands for. That, that really doesn't fit. It doesn't work with Jesus' kingdom culture and what he stands for. They, they don't fit together. And one of the things we said, just to kind of point th- out some of the characteristics of these two different cultures, cancel culture looks to do a handful of things. Disavow, discredit, disown, and detach. I mean, that's really what it's all about. It's about saying, I have no connection with this person. Like, I don't know this person. I'm, I'm disowning this person. This person, I'm stealing their credibility or, or eliminating their credibility. I'm disowning them, right? Like, I don't know them. I have no ownership in their life. I have no part of their life. And when we detach, we withdraw from people when they make mistakes, when they do things, when they make messes of their lives or maybe messes of other people's lives, when they say things, do things, act a certain way that, that's offensive to us or that hurts us or hurts somebody else, we say, we're done with you. That's cancel culture. But Jesus' kingdom culture looks to restore, redeem, rescue, and renovate. And you can see the difference. You can see the difference between Jesus' kingdom culture and cancel culture. Cancel culture would say there's such a thing as a lost cause. Cancel culture would say there's such a thing as too damaged or damaged goods. Cancel culture would say you can be too broken and too messy. For us to want to deal with you, for us to want to have a relationship with you, Jesus' uncanceled kingdom culture would say there's no one too far gone. There's no one too broken. There's no one too messy. There is no such thing as a lost cause. And no one is too damaged or too broken that, that, that I can't get involved in their lives and, and, and bring life where there was once death. To bring connection, relationship, community where there was once solitude and isolation. That's kind of how Jesus' kingdom culture works. And, and the Bible tells us that, that when Jesus came preaching, right, at 30 years old, Jesus started his public ministry, right, and when he came preaching, the message that he would preach over and over and over again at the beginning of his ministry sounded like this, the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe, right, which there's some churchy words in there, right, we'll unpack those here in just a minute. It means this, let me just kind of unpack this, right. When Jesus says the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe, it means this. You don't have to live in, live by, or live under the operating system of cancel culture. You don't have to do that. You don't have to live in fear of that. You don't have to to live hating someone else, right, because somebody tells you you have to. I mean, that's kind of how cancel culture works. It's like we canceled that person. You're not allowed to like them anymore. Right? You're not allowed to be friends with them. You're not allowed to have a relationship with them. You're not allowed to, to support them. Jesus says, you don't have to live under that. You don't have to live under that operating system anymore. Jesus says, there's a new kingdom that's at hand, which is a fancy way of saying it's here, now. And he says, repent and believe. Repent is this kind of fancy word that means to, to change direction. Right? So when you repent, you turn away from something in order to, to, to turn towards something else. Right? And when we believe, that means we have faith. Right? Faith is, is confidence. It's who or what we put our confidence in, we trust, and we believe can best take care of us and provide for us in life. And Jesus says, listen, turn away from that old kingdom, repent, turn towards a new kingdom, and trust me. Have confidence in me that I can take care of you, that I can provide for you with what you need. And and Dallas Willard takes this kind of repent and believe saying, right, Jesus' core message, and he he translates it like this. For us, when we read Jesus' message, this this is how it reads. It's now possible to rethink, to repent, right, to rethink, to change direction. You don't have to think that way anymore. It's now possible to rethink every single aspect in your life in light of the fact that because of Jesus... We believe because of Jesus, he's the only way this works. 
Because of Jesus, the kingdom of the heavens is now open to all. All of those narratives that we tend to buy into that would say there's no hope for you. There's no way out from under your past mistakes. There's no way to get beyond the fear that someone might find you out. Those kinds of narratives. All of those get replaced by Jesus saying to us, would you you like another chance? Would you like another shot at this? It's not over, right? You're not done. You're not canceled. You're not disqualified. You're not too broken. You're not too messy. You're not too far gone. Would you like a from now on chance at your marriage, at friendships, at the community that you live? Would you like a from now on with your family? Jesus says, listen, would you like a from now on the peace and the goodness that, that Jesus desires? for? Do you, Jesus says, do you, do you want that? The abundant life that Jesus makes possible? Would you like a from now on? And I know there are a lot of us in the room that, that hear somebody like me say that, and you think, well, yeah, Brad, you're, you, you like have to say that kind of stuff. Right? You're a pastor, you're a professional Christian, you get paid to talk about Jesus. You, you have to say all of the good, nice, warm, fuzzy things about Jesus. But I know that there are a lot of us in the room, myself included, that hear people say things like that. Would you like another chance? You're not too broken. You're not too messy. You're not too far gone. And we think, that sounds great, but it doesn't apply to me. Like, that's not for me. It might be for somebody else. It might be for the person sitting next to me or behind me. It might be for for a handful of people in this room. That might be possible for them. But Brad, if you only knew what I did... If you only knew the truth of what's really happened to me or if you found out about the choices that I've made and the wreckage and the damage that I caused in my life or in other people's lives, like some people might be able to rethink their life in light of Jesus, but I can't. If that's you or maybe there's just even kind of a whisper of that narrative in your mind, can I just say this? You're not alone in thinking that. And that's exactly what our enemy would want, right? Would want you to think, well, you're the only one in this room today. You're the only one in this church. You're the only one in your community, in your friend group, in your family that Jesus can't save. That's what he would want you to believe. Because when he gets you alone and he isolates you, that's when you're an easy target, right? He would have you believe that. You're not alone. You're not alone in thinking that. You're not alone in wrestling with that. I've felt that before. There have been times in my life when I thought, yeah, Jesus, you can fix this, but you can't fix me. And there have been people in the Bible that have felt that way. Like we read through Scripture and we find people in the Bible that feel that way. Like, yeah, Jesus, you can do all these amazing things. You can perform all these miracles and and demonstrate all these signs of your power, the fact that you're God with skin on. You can do all that stuff for them, but not me. And you might be thinking, like, hold up. Like, really, Brad? Like, people in the Bible, like, they thought that they were lost causes? Like, people in the Bible thought that they were damaged goods beyond repair? Like, really? Like, they're Bible people. Aren't they special? No! They're just like us. And they had those same thoughts and those same feelings and believed those same lies and narratives. Not only did they believe that, they were told that. Usually by churchy people. Usually it was the religious leaders, the religious people, the self-righteous people that didn't want messy people like them coming into their church. So not only did these people believe that they were lost causes, they were told by people in the church, hey, that narrative in your head that says you're done, it's true. 
you are. And so what we've been doing for the last six or so weeks is we've been looking at story after story after story of Jesus getting in the same room with people like you and me who have been told or who have been led to believe that there's no fixing us. You can't fix this. And we've seen time and time again these different examples of what happens when when Jesus gets involved. Now, here's the deal. The story we're going to read today kind of takes place at the end of Jesus' three-year public ministry. Jesus is about a week, two weeks-ish away from being executed on a cross. And over the course of Jesus' three-year ministry, because he spent time with people that had been canceled by their culture in one way or another, the number one question that Jesus got asked by the religious leaders and the self-righteous people in his day was this. Why do you hang out with, why do you care about, and why do you spend time with those people? Why do you care about people like that? Why do you give your time to people like that? Why are you willing to be seen with people like that? But again, these religious leaders, these self-righteous people, they could not wrap their heads around why Jesus would want to spend time with sinful, messy, sick, broken, and hurting people. They couldn't figure it out. And so Jesus would get asked this question over and over and over again. And most of the time, the way Jesus would respond is he'd look at the religious leaders and he would say something like, you really don't get it. Like at one point he calls them blind guides, right? It's like, you, you, how can you not see this? He would kind of respond to them or he'd tell a story that would have some illustration that would go over their heads, right? Everybody else in the room would get it. The smartest people in the room didn't. How can you not see this? But in the story that we're going to unpack today, Jesus gets asked this question again. Like, why do you hang out with people like that? And today... Instead of just giving a story or or looking at people and kind of going, you you just don't understand. Jesus is going to give a direct answer. And I'm going to be honest with you, it's going to rattle some cages. It did back in Jesus' day. It did back when Jesus gave this direct answer to people that would look at him and go, why? Tell us why you want to hang out with people like that. Jesus answers it directly. And it shook people. Right? A couple thousand years ago, jaws hit the floor. And I would imagine for some of us today, it's going to do the same thing. So if you've got your Bible with you, grab it and open it up to Luke chapter 19. We're going to live in the first handful of verses in Luke chapter 19, Matthew, Mark, Luke. That's kind of almost halfway through your Bible or a little more than halfway through your Bible, beginning in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Those are the biographies and stories of Jesus. Luke chapter 19. Here's what it says, starting in verse 1. It says, he, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Now, maybe you heard this. How many of us, just show of hands, how many of us remember hearing about this, learning about this in Sunday school as little kids, right? If you're real fancy, maybe your Sunday school teacher had one of those flannel boards. Kids, let me explain what that is, right? It's a Literally a board of felt that we would attach cartoon characters to. It wasn't a screen. It didn't move. We had to do all the voices and animation ourselves, right? You had a flannel board, right, like your Sunday school teacher. How many of us remember the song? Can we have a little sing-along, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Keep going. Climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And this is the part we all and then we get to the chorus, because I'm going to your house today, right? And then we get loud again, right? This is what church was like, like 
30 years ago, okay? But here's the thing. I want to dig into this story in a way that's going to kind of blow our five-year-old Sunday school brains, right? Here's what happens. Like Luke, Luke tells us that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. And Luke, Luke was a physician. He was a doctor. So, so Luke oftentimes adds really important detail because he's kind of a detailed guy. So, so Luke tells us that, that, that Zacchaeus was a, a chief tax collector. And here's what that means. Back in this day, the religious leaders and kind of the self-righteous people, the, the religious people, the churchy people, what they did was they put messy and broken and canceled people into two main categories, sinners and tax collectors. Like that was kind of how they categorized them. And they applied this kind of sinner category or that sinner title primarily to people who had sinned sexually, right? So people who were prostitutes, people who had committed adultery, those kinds of things. But beyond that, the sinner category was just a general category. I mean, they felt like they could just kind of toss people in general who were sinners into that category. If you were labeled a sinner of any kind, if you made it on their list, you were canceled and you were disqualified. Right? So sinner is kind of this catch-all. It's for anybody that sinned. It's for anybody that broke the religious law. But it's really just kind of a catch-all, right? Tax collectors had their own category. And here's why. In the eyes of the religious people, sinners were bad people, but tax collectors were on an entirely different level. So here's like a quick church history lesson, right? So, so back in this day, Rome had conquered like the majority of the known world, including the Middle East, including Israel, where all this is happening. And after they would conquer a country, what Rome would do is they would then occupy that country. They would conquer a country and they would say, this place is now ours. And just like today, right, in order for the Roman government to work, they collected taxes. Right? They would tax people. They needed tax dollars to, to, to fuel their empire. And conquered countries, countries that had been conquered by Rome, were part of that empire. So they also had to pay taxes to Rome. And so... It's like adding insult to injury. Like not only did this, this army come in and wipe you out and kill your people and hurt your people and destroy your land, now you got to pay them for it. You have, to, you have to pony up your money to, to pay them. So it's kind of insult to injury. But, but here's the deal. To the Romans, a place like Israel would have been kind of seen as like the armpit of the world. Right? They, it was far away from Rome. The closer to Rome you were, the better things were. And so it was far away from Rome. They didn't want to be there. Romans didn't want to spend their time in a place like Israel with people like that. And so instead of sending Roman officials to collect taxes, what they would do is they would hire people from Israel to collect taxes from their own people. And the deal that they made with them was this. Like, listen, tax collector, here's, here's the deal. Rome... We just want our cut. Like we, want, we want our 10%. Like give us our cut of the tax dollars, but you can collect as much as you want from all these people, and you can keep it. So long as we get what we need, you can keep whatever you want. And to top it off, if you agree to this, we'll give you some of our Roman soldiers to protect you and also to be your enforcers to make sure people pay up. I mean, this was crazy. Being a tax collector back in this day was the ultimate betrayal of your own people. Tax collectors got rich by overtaxing their own people and driving poor and oppressed people even further into poverty. 
Now, I tried to think of something that would kind of compare, right, modern day. And there are lots of examples, right, when you think about somebody that's turned their back on their people. But I, but I remembered a mission trip we led some students on probably 15 years ago to the Czech Republic, and we, we visited Auschwitz and Birkenau, right, the concentration camps in Poland. And one of the things is we were visiting Birkenau, which is this big field, right, there's train tracks they would bring and they would drop people off. You, you take a tour, right, back to the furnace where they would burn people. They would throw people into the furnace. And I remember the tour guide telling us that part of the cruelty and part of the evil of the, of the Nazis is that they would offer Jewish people better food, better living conditions, a nice bed, you know, those, those kinds of things, if they were the ones that worked the furnace. That kind of thing. So you can sleep in a nice bed. You don't have to, to, to live in, in filth. You have a bathroom, right? You got a roof over your head. We'll feed you, but you have to be the one to throw your own people into the fire. It's kind of like that. That level of cruelty, that level of evil. And so you think about somebody that would say yes to that kind of an offer. And they, the, the tour guide told us that, that there would be Jews, there would be people that would take the, the Nazis up on that offer, and eventually they would go crazy because the guilt and shame would destroy them. And they knew that. They didn't care. It's like, ah, well, we'll just find another one. That's kind of what it's like to turn your back on your own people, to destroy your own people and help a government and help an army and a military that's already trying to destroy you and doesn't care about you. And it doesn't stop there, right? See, Luke tells us that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, which meant two things. One, he's been at this for a while. like He's been doing this for a long time. He's worked his way up the, the tax collector ladder. And two, being a chief tax collector meant that you had other tax collectors working under you and reporting to you. And not only do you get a keep, get a keep of what like you want to take, but you also get a cut of their take. So like Zacchaeus is like the Vito Corleone of the New Testament, right? And he's like the godfather. And here's what we know. Zacchaeus was simultaneously rich and hated beyond all imagination. And when we read this story and we know some of these details... I don't know about you, but for me, kind of the first place I go in my brain is this. Well, he should be hated. Like, he betrayed his own people. He got rich off of their pain. He cheated, he stole, he profited off of their possession. See, I think we hear about injustice like this, whether it's in the Bible or, or whether it's just in our lives in general in the world. We hear about someone cheated, someone lied, someone stole, someone abused their authority, someone abused their power, someone used their power to take advantage of people. And we think, yeah, we should hate them. We should hate people like that. But here's the deal, church. When all we see is the sin instead of the someone, people end up becoming punching bags. When we can no longer see the person and instead all we see is the sin, people, they stop becoming people. And instead they become punching bags, targets. Things for us to take out our anger, our hate. Ways we can focus our anger, our hate. Focus it on them. Why? It's not a person. That's a punching bag. I listened to my friend Jim Bergen preach through a story like this a while back. And I remember him asking a question in his church that I never thought to ask myself when it came to someone like Zacchaeus. Someone who on the surface just seems so worthy of hate. Jim asked this question. He says, what do you think 
happened in Zacchaeus' life that caused him to turn his back on everything and everyone that meant something to him and meant something to his life. Here's the deal. Cancel culture doesn't slow down enough to ask these kinds of questions. Because in our mind, punching bags don't have stories. Like punching bags are just there to get beat up. I don't care what your story is, punching bag. I'm just here to hit you again and again and again and again. But let's make this a little more personal. You're like, I wish you wouldn't. I'm going to, right? I'm sure most of us, probably all of us, have made choices and we've done things in our lives that have hurt other people in one way or another. And we've been the one. Right After the, the aftermath of this, when the truth comes out, we've been the one that's been hated on. We've been labeled and we've been canceled in, friends, in friend groups and in families. Like we're not allowed to show up at holidays anymore. Like we can't come to Thanksgiving or Christmas. We're not invited. We're not welcome there. Or at work, like we made a mistake. We did something at work. We got fired. And it's like you're not allowed back in the building. And I'm guessing as you reflect back on those moments, I know as I reflect back on those moments in my life, right, we would probably say that wasn't my plan. It's not what I hoped for. I didn't wake up that day and decide to betray everyone and everything that means something to me and matters in my life. I didn't decide that. I don't think anyone would say that our goal in life, the thing that we dreamt about as a little kid when people would say, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be hated and reviled by as many people as possible. That's my goal. Every single story that we've unpacked in the series thus far, if we could kind of go upstream in the lives of these people, I would guess none of them would say, you know what, that's exactly what I was going for. I was really hoping one day I'd be treated like an object and used for, for, for sexual gratification for other people. I was really hoping that that would, that would happen, that I wouldn't be treated as a person, I'd be treated as a thing, and that that would, would wind up with me getting thrown naked at Jesus' feet in public and been given a death sentence. That's what I was going for. I made it. I really look forward to, to being cast out of my community and written off as a lost cause to live out my days alone and in pain. Perfect. So I was hoping for. But like these stories we've read, right, like Zacchaeus, like even our own lives, somewhere along the line, we start to surrender to the narratives that our shame creates. Like we think to ourselves, well, this is just the way it is. My life just is what it is. I am who I am, right? There's no way to undo this. There's no way to fix these choices I've made. There's no way to undo the hurt that, that I've caused. There's no way to undo the hurt that others have caused me, right? We didn't want that. We didn't ask for that, but it's too late for us. So what do we do? Might as well just keep pressing deeper and deeper and deeper into whatever will help numb my pain, whether it's sex, substances, success, stuff, whatever. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us what happened in Zacchaeus' life that made him take his own life down that path. I mean, maybe he was bullied because he was small. Maybe he was abused. Maybe he was told by his family, we don't want you. Maybe he was abandoned and cast out because of what some people would see when they look at him. They saw a handicap or, or a birth defect. So we don't want you around here. And eventually what happened is he gave in. He surrendered to the shame narrative. And when Rome comes along with this offer to get filthy, stinking rich by betraying your own people, Zacchaeus might have just figured, well, what else do I have to lose at this point? Because let's be real, they betrayed me first. Now I just get to get even. 
And in the end, here's what happened. Zacchaeus became a traitor to his country, disowned by his family, and disqualified by his religion. But here's another kind of critical detail that Luke gives us. In spite of all of this, in spite of all of this, his past pain, Zacchaeus' past pain, his present situation of being a canceled and hated man, he was willing to stake his life and his future on Jesus. See, Luke tells us that Zacchaeus was seeking to see Jesus. Let's pick up in verse 4. So he, Zacchaeus, ran and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, Jesus, for he was about to pass that way. Now, think about this. Forget the flannel board. Try to imagine this. Somebody who's hated to the extent and with the ferocity that Zacchaeus was hated, the amount of people that he had done wrong and betrayed and stolen from and pushed further into poverty, the amount of pain he had caused the people around him, this was a risk for Zacchaeus. One, to show himself in public without a guard would have been a risk because everybody wanted to take a shot at him. But to climb up into a tree, that's an easy target. There would have been a lot of people in Jericho that would have wanted to, they were waiting for a moment like this. Hey, we're just waiting for a moment when his guard isn't looking. We're waiting for a moment when he's got his back turned and we're going to get him. And then he climbs up into a tree. Doesn't have a lot of protection in a tree, right? But for him, the possibility that there could maybe be a new way to live was worth him risking everything. It says this, when Zacchaeus, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry. We'll talk about that in a minute. Hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. Well, he tells us, so he hurried and he came down and received Jesus joyfully. So imagine the scene, all right? Just kind of play it out in your head. The most hated man in the city, up in a tree, trying to get an eye on Jesus. And then Jesus kind of moves through the crowd and gets closer and closer to the sycamore tree with a little man in it. And if you're in the crowd, you're thinking, oh, 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 Zacchaeus is about to get it, right? You're about to get what's coming to you, man. Like, you're starting to go, like, get him, Jesus. Like, get him. If you're Zacchaeus, you're thinking, he's getting closer. Like, he's coming this way. He's, he's looking at me. He's talking to me like you're, you're, you're like you just wanted to catch a glimpse to see if he was real and now he's 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 locked on his eyes are locked on you and he's starting to get closer to you and then he speaks to you and Jesus says man you got to get down quick hurry now get down out of the tree I've got to come to your house the phrase that Jesus used here the phrase that Jesus says right when he said it, it means this right it's necessary when he says, you've got, I must come to your house, Jesus says, it means this, it's necessary, it's decreed, it's on purpose, it's right and good that I come to your house right now. This isn't like, you know, Jesus sees Zacchaeus in a tree and says, hey man, would you, would you like to hang out sometime? Like maybe grab coffee, grab breakfast, check your calendar, check your schedule, I'll check mine, we'll get back to each other and we'll figure this out, right? You want to hang out next week? No, Jesus says, this is a royal decree. It's happening now. Get down out of the tree. Get down fast. Jesus says, he doesn't say, hey, take your time. Be safe. I mean, Jesus basically says, jump, I'll catch you. 
get down out of the tree. The Greek word for hurry is the word spudo, which is, I'm guessing, where also they came up with speedo. It doesn't mean... It doesn't mean go slow. It means go fast. Don't slow down. Don't let, again, Speedo, don't let anything hinder you, right? Go fast. And while that's happening with Jesus and Zacchaeus, the crowd, they're watching all this go down. And the religious people in Luke chapter verse 7, it says this, when they saw it, they grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Why is Jesus talking to somebody like him? Why is Jesus going into to his house? And I think in this moment, it's easy to throw shade on the religious leaders, but have you ever thought something like that? No. Really? You, maybe you've known somebody that's had this encounter with Jesus, and you start to see things in their life change, and your first thought isn't, wow, that's amazing. Thank God for that. Your, your first thought is this. Yeah, that probably won't last. And here we go again. Check back on them in a few weeks, right, in a few months. They'll just be right back where they started. I've seen this before. Never changes. Someone has this encounter with Jesus, and your response is doubt. Your response is to question the validity. Your response is to go, nah, I don't think so. Or maybe when you hear about somebody having an encounter with Jesus, your first thought is, oh, I bet Jesus let them have it. I bet Jesus just lined it all out for him and kicked their butts, right? I mean, I know I'm not perfect, but, like, I'm not as bad as them. Like, if Jesus showed up to my house, I know he'd have a few things to talk to me about. I can't imagine what he said to them. I wouldn't want to be in the room, right, to see how that went down because I'm sure it was awful. I bet Jesus let him have it. We don't know anything about the conversation that Jesus and Zacchaeus had. But I think we can say pretty confidently that Jesus didn't beat him up. Jesus didn't let him have it because when have you seen Jesus do that? When have you seen Jesus do that to someone like Zacchaeus? If anything, the people that Jesus let have it were the religious people, were the church people. But here's what we do know. We do know something happened because we check out verse 8. It says this, Zacchaeus stood and he said to, to the Lord, he said, Behold, Lord, the, like half of my goods I'm going to give to the poor. Half of my stuff, half of everything I own, I'm giving away to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will repay it fourfold, four times the amount. Now, we look at this and go, oh, good job, Zacchaeus, right? But here, I want to point out something. Like many of us and like people in our lives, Zacchaeus is still a work in progress, right? There's still some things that he needs to work on when it comes to, like, the responsibility and ownership side of things. He's like, listen, hey, um, I'll give half of my stuff to the poor, he should have said, I'll give half of my stuff to the people I made poor. And he says, if, if I've defrauded anyone, you cannot picture Jesus going, <clears throat> if, like you, you did. Okay, right, I'll, I'll pay it back fourfold. But I think you and I can identify with him, even though he's a work in progress, like he's still figuring this thing out. You and I know that there are parts of our lives where something needs to change. And maybe up until today, you didn't know where to start. You got some deep mess, right? We got some deep mess in our lives, and all we know is to keep doing what we're doing. And maybe you've heard about Jesus, and, and you've heard of what Jesus can do and what he can do with people like us, right? And, and you think, maybe if I can just see, if I can just kind of check Jesus out from a safe distance, right? If I can check Jesus out from, like, arm's length, then, then I can figure out what all he's about. And before you know it, because Jesus doesn't do safe distance, right, he's sitting face-to-face -face with you, and he's saying, I can show you a way back. 
Do you want that? Check out what he says in verse 9 and 10. Jesus said to him, today, salvation, which is the word deliverance or, or preservation or safety. In other words, a way back. A way back has come to this house. Because you see, he, Zacchaeus, is also a son of Abraham, meaning this, you're in my family. He said to everyone, this one, this one's mine. And then Jesus says some famous words, the son of man came to seek and save the lost, right? The word seek means to aim at, to, to strive after or to crave. Jesus said, listen, I came to aim my entire life after people who are lost. I came to strive after, to, to climb over obstacle, under obstacle, to go through obstacles, including death. I strive to find people that are lost. I crave, I crave people that are lost to save them, to rescue them. Literally, it's the Greek word sozo that means to rescue from the brink of danger and destruction. I came to save the lost. And we think of lost I think a lot of times we think of lost, we think of confused. Like you're lost. You, you don't know your directions, right? You, you made a wrong turn somewhere. You're lost. You don't know where you are. The, the term lost is the same type of term that we would say like when a ship sinks. The ship was lost. Or when someone dies, they lost their life. He said, that's who I came for. Those who have been declared dead, ruined, and destroyed. Now here's what's going to blow our five-year-old brains. When Jesus says these lines, the son of man came to seek and save the lost, the religious leaders would have recognized what he was saying because Jesus was referencing Old Testament prophecy. See, there were these prophets who were agents of God, like people who spoke on God's behalf, delivered a message from God. Sometimes the message they would deliver would be about something that was going to happen in the future. And Jesus starts to quote Ezekiel, a prophet, who had a message from God to deliver to people about something that's going to happen in the days to come. They would have known that. These religious leaders, these church people, these self-righteous people, because they had to study it. They had to know the, the Old Testament forwards and backwards, right? They would have known. They would have recognized Jesus' words. Check out what it says in Ezekiel 34. It says, the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Say this, thus says the Lord, ah, shepherds of Israel, who've been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? But instead, you eat the fat ones, you clothe yourself with, with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you don't feed them. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought. With force and harshness, you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. See, Jesus isn't making a statement by uncanceling someone who is deemed un-uncancelable by the, the religious leaders. This isn't like just some warm, fuzzy moment of Jesus kind of showing love to a person that, that everybody hated. Jesus is saying to the religious leaders, to the church people, I came to seek and save the sheep that you lost. That's who I came for. You were supposed to make sure that a guy like Zacchaeus never got lost. 
despite his past, despite his handicap, despite whatever it may be, you were supposed to make sure that a guy like that never got lost, that he never strayed from the flock. But instead, here's what you did. You circled your wagons and you decided, we don't want to deal with people like that in our church. And instead of caring for sheep, you turned into wolves. And you beat them up. And you abused them and you attacked them and you judged them to the point that they ran from you because you're not safe. Does that sound familiar? Anybody in here that's walked in these doors, experiencing church hurt, coming out of a place? Does that sound familiar? I'm not sure. Ask somebody. I'll tell you what, do this. Here's an experiment this week. Ask somebody who isn't connected to a church, doesn't believe in Jesus, doesn't go to church, doesn't trust or follow Jesus, right? Ask them. I guess, my bet is, here's what they'll say. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what will happen if I go inside a church. I don't know how the people there will treat me. I don't know if because of my lifestyle, because of my past, because of my mistakes, I don't know if I'll be welcomed there. I'm not sure it's safe. And for us, it's so much easier for us to stay in our little holy huddles and sing Amazing Grace while lost sheep get more and more lost. And Jesus said, I came craving to find those who are lost. In chapter 34, Ezekiel says this, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flocks when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places that they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel, that shall be their grazing land, and they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy destroy the absentee shepherds that turned into wolves i will feed them in justice i found this picture i stumbled on an artist on friday and when i saw this picture i wept for a lot of reasons it's been kind of a wild couple weeks in our family but it became clear to me when I saw this picture, I realized this is why Jesus had so much urgency. This is why Jesus looked at that. See, he said, you got to get, get, get down now. Get down now. Come quick. It's because Jesus is a good shepherd that saves lost sheep from wolves. And the wolves were circling the sycamore tree, moving in for the kill. And Jesus pushes through those wolves, pushes through that pack of wolves and says, get down. Get down now. We've got to get you someplace that's safe. And then I imagine Jesus standing on Zacchaeus' front porch looking at the wolves who thought that they were going to get a fresh kill that day and saying, you can't get to this one because he belongs to me. This is what Jesus came to do. The sheep that have gone lost. He came to seek them out. And there's a second picture that I love this too. Jesus doesn't save from a safe distance. He gets down in the mud. He gets covered in the same mess that you're covered in. Literally handed himself over to the wolves. 
I said, let them kill me so they don't have to kill you. Some of us in this room were lost sheep. And I need to tell you this today. The reason that Jesus left heaven and came to earth was to look for you, to find you and to save you. And it's probably for the same reason that you think he's mad at you. The same reason that you think Jesus is mad at you and disqualified you and could never love or fix somebody like you. That's the exact same reason Jesus said, I'm leaving perfection and I'm gonna get down in the mud because I'm looking for them. So here's my question. Would you like to rethink your life in light of the fact that Jesus seeks you out and gives you a way back into his family? The only thing he asks, turn his direction and trust him. Just like in that picture, I mean, you see the shepherd running. Turn in his direction and just trust him. Would you like that? If you're a lost sheep, would you like that? Jesus says it's possible. Some of us in the room, we have become absentee shepherds. We stopped caring about people that were lost. Or maybe even some of us, we've become wolves. We stopped caring for the flock. We, we started seeing people not as people, but as punching bags. And I'm just gonna tell you, church, we need to repent. We need to rethink what it means to call ourselves Christians. The word Christian literally means little Christ, imitator of Christ. You saw that picture. You saw the level of urgency in which the shepherd is running to get to that sheep that's almost gonna be devoured by the wolf. Imitate that. That's who we're supposed to be. You saw the picture of that shepherd covered in the mud that the sheep was stuck in. Get messy. That's what it means to call ourselves Christian. We have to rethink what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We have to rethink what it means to be a church, what church is all about, what this thing exists for. And so I ask you this. Would you like to rethink your life knowing that Jesus, despite the fact that maybe you've fallen asleep as a shepherd or maybe you've become a wolf yourself, would you like to accept Jesus' invitation to join him in the rescue mission? There's a way back. There's a way back for lost sheep and for wolves. If we're willing to turn back towards Jesus and trust him. We're gonna sing a song um, that is perfect for today. In fact, I texted Grace. I'm like, hey, listen, we gotta change the worship set. Sorry, here's what we're doing. We're gonna do this song at the end. She's great, it's awesome. The song is called Homecoming. And it walks through all these different conditions that we have in life. But the bridge says over and over and over again, the Father is welcoming. This is our homecoming. So as we worship, I would invite you to come home. If you're a lost sheep, come home. If you're an absentee shepherd or a wolf, come home. The Father is welcoming. You can come home. There is a way back. And it's only possible through Jesus. I'm gonna pray for us. We're gonna worship. Today, you wanna accept Christ. If you wanna say yes to Jesus, I'd love to meet you down front. If you need prayer, I'd love to pray for you. If you wanna join this church of people who are willing to rethink what it means to be Christians, what it means to be a church, we'd love to have you join us. We're all on a journey. We're trying to figure it out as best we can. But pray for us and we're gonna sing. Jesus, you're good, we love you. And this morning, we 
pray in your name, Lord, that we would see the lost return because that's not something that we can do. We don't have the ability, nor do we have what it takes to save people that are lost, but you do. And what we can do is get them in the same room with a good shepherd. That's our job. That's what you hold us accountable for. Are you, are you willing to get them in the same room with me? If so, I'll take it from there. Jesus, I pray today that we would rethink some of us who feel like we are lost causes, we are lost sheep, we are lost, we are sunk, that we would know that there's a second chance. We can come home. You're welcoming. This is our homecoming. Father, for those of us who have turned our eye away from the flock, or even for those of us who have become wolves, we turn back to you and trust you. You're welcoming, and this is our homecoming. Jesus, we love you. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.